Would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19? Hannah, thank you. Maybe you've heard this before. That's so, that's so wrong. Unfair. How, how can they treat me like that? Grumble, grumble. You know what, honey? We deserve way better than this life group. Grumble, grumble. You know what, if this church would just realize what we have been contributing sacrificially over the last months and years, you know what, a little recognition would go a long way. Grumble, grumble. I expect to be treated in a little different way than that. Grumble, grumble. To grumble. Webster says it's to mutter in discontent, grumble, grumble. When something happens to you that you perceive as some kind of injustice, you're tempted to grumble. When you don't get something you want, you may be tempted to grumble. Grumbling is almost always born of comparing yourself to others. And so at the heart of grumbling is this sense of you, me, my rights. What's do me? You know, cancer can metastasize in a body. And it can wreak havoc in a body. Grumbling is the metastasizing of pride in a body. And it can do a local body great harm. God has no place. There's no place for grumbling in his people. But you know what is fitting among God's people? Gratitude. Humble gratitude that is in constant amazement at God's grace. And so this morning... The sermon of this title, if I were to rewrite it, it would be God's grace for your grumbling heart. We're going to move through a, quite a section of scripture this morning, and I want you to see first a stark contrast, and then Jesus is going to make some sobering clarifications, and then we're going to end in a parable of God's grace. And what I want to help you to see this morning and what I believe God is wanting to address us with this morning is that God's grace compels us to say no to grumbling and to say yes to gratitude. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk us through a lengthy chunk of scripture here, but we're just going to move quickly through it and make points along the way. So I hope you're looking at Matthew chapter 19. If you would be looking at verses 13, we're going to start with a stark contrast between two different kinds of hearts, a humble heart and a prideful heart. And so in verses, chapter 19, verses 30, 13 through 15, Jesus gives us a lesson on a humble heart. Here's what's going on. 
In verse 13, we have parents bringing their kids to Jesus. And if you look at verse 13, at the end, the disciples are rebuking these parents. They're saying something like this. Sorry, Jeremiah is real cute, but the master doesn't have any time for your little babies, okay? He's got time for big image bearers, not little image bearers. And Jesus hears them, and he says to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. You see that in verse 14? Why not? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. A couple weeks ago, Billy preached a great sermon out of Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. And if you just page one back and look at Matthew 18, 3 through 4, Jesus is bringing something to our minds. And, and Matthew, who's organizing all this, is, is setting up a comparison. And in at Matthew 2, 18, 2, 3 and 4, we read, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you disciples will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven values humility. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, would you stop keeping the little children from coming to me? Let them come to me because they are a living parable of a kingdom value, humility. They're dependent. They're devoted, unassuming, trusting. Jesus is saying, don't stop these children from coming to me. They picture something such as them. The kingdom of heaven throws wide open its doors of grace to the humble. Wide open. And so what we see happening in verses 13 through 15 is that Matthew is emphasizing childlike humility. It is a distinctive trait that characterizes a follower of Jesus. Humility. And it's not the first time that Jesus has talked about this. Back in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are all different ways of talking about humility. Disciples are those who are God-reliant, not self-reliant. We come low to our God. We come recognizing our need to our God like children. So as followers of Jesus, we are dependent on God's grace, not our own ability. So what we see happening at the end of verse 15 is that after Jesus does this rebuke of his disciples, the children come to him, and do you see what he does? He puts his hands on them, he prays for them, and he blesses them. So here's what I want to get into your heads right out of the gate. Here's what Matthew is saying. The kingdom emphasizes humility. God delights in humility. So much so that Jesus moves towards the humble. God in his grace moves towards the humble. He lays his hands on the humble. He moves towards the humble. Humility and grace, when they intersect, it is an explosion of gratitude. 
where humility and grace intersect, you've got gratitude. So this comparison, this contrast starts up with childlike humility. And then, in contrast, in walks a living parable of pride. And this is in verses 16 through 22, the other side of the contrast. A young man comes in. Here's what happened. This guy walks in, comes up to Jesus. He asks a question. He and Jesus have a dialogue. And then he walks away sad. So let's see what happens here. In verse 16, a man walks up, according to Jesus. And what we learn later is that he's a young man and he's a rich man. Luke tells us he is a ruler, he's a powerful man, and apparently he's a polite guy because he's very nice in addressing Jesus. He might be the kind of guy, dads, you might say, hmm, kind of guy I like for my, my, my daughter. So this young man comes up to Jesus in verse 16. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And all of a sudden, Jesus is smelling something. Have you ever opened up your refrigerator and you see in the back a bottle of milk and you're like thinking, oh man, when did we get that? What will you do? You do the sniff test. You pull it out, you open it up, and you just go, and what are you, what are you smelling for? Sour milk. And as soon as you know it's sour milk, especially if you smell sour milk, you're like, this is out. This man's question has the smell of sour pride in the nostrils of Jesus. Jesus smells something here. What this guy is saying is, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man thinks that he is capable of gooding himself into eternal life. That's what's behind the question. It's thinking, thinking. So Jesus picks up on the word good and attempts to steer this man to God in verse 17. Do you see him do it? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And who is that? That's God. In other words, you ain't good, man. Only God is good. Why do you think you can do good when you're a sinner? And then in verse 17, Jesus says, if you would enter life, if you would get saved, you want to be saved? Here, keep the commandments. Now, I'm guessing some of you right now are like, I'm smelling something sour myself. Hmm. Is Jesus teaching a salvation by works right here? Hmm. Is he actually saying that obey the commands and you will be saved? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, he's not saying that. Here's how we know. This is just the beginning of Jesus' response to this rich young man. Jesus is starting to probe this young man. Let's wait for the rest of what Jesus says. You'll see what he does. Jesus puts on a bit of a clinic here. Now, depending on how this man responds to this will be very telling. For example, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And if this young man said, you know what? All last week, I was just trying to, you know, not murder. And then I realized I hate people in my heart. And I realized there's just no way I can keep this one commandment. I, am, I can't do it, Jesus. I can't keep the commandments. Now, if he said that to Jesus right now, Jesus would be like, we're cooking with gas. 
You're talking to the right guy. But look how he responds in verse 18. Keep the commandments. Oh yeah, which ones? There's a little sour smell to that. A little sour pride to that. Which ones? Not quite the humble response. And then Jesus says in verse 19 some very interesting things. He points them right to the Bible. He points them right to the latter half of the Ten Commandments of interrelationships. Okay? And so now here's what I would do if I was a cinematographer. If I was putting this, this little section into a movie, here's how I'd do it. I'd have a kind of close-up lens on Jesus when Jesus would say, well, you shall not murder. He says that. And then I would, I would go over with my lens to the rich young man who would then say, never. I go back to Jesus who then says, you shall not commit adultery. And that camera would go back to the rich young ruler who would be like, I didn't even think about that. Heaven forbid. Back to Jesus. And Jesus says, you shall not steal. To the young man. And the young man says, not even once. Not even a toothpick. Back to Jesus. Jesus says, you shall not bear false witness. It goes to the rich young man. He says, I'm not a crook. Back to Jesus. And Jesus says, honor your father and your mother. To the young man, I rise up in the gate and call my mother blessed. Back to Jesus. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man says, Master, I walked old lady Ruth, the widow, across the street, coming to here. I love my neighbor. This guy's like Teflon. Nothing sticks. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Are you smelling it? He's talking to Emmanuel, God incarnate. The one who came to save his people from their sins by dying for them on a cross. He's got a problem. What do I lack? Jesus would have been fine if Jesus said, humility. But Jesus doesn't. Look what he does. He's not done. He's just setting this guy up. He has him right where he wants. Just a bigger principle. The law brings us to Jesus. The law exposes our sinfulness and shows us our need for Christ. Jesus fulfills the law. So look where he goes. You want to be perfect? Short 21, you want to be perfect? You want to be complete? What he's saying is, this is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. You want to... Uh, love God with everything you got. You want to be like that? Rich, wrong man says, oh, yes, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, yes, that's why I'm here. And Jesus says, go. Oh, I can go. Yes, I can go and sell. Oh, I can sell. What do you want me to sell? All that you got. Uh -uh. Excuse me. Not only sell all that you have and then give to the poor, Go on eBay, sell all of your stuff. When it comes into PayPal, take all the cash and give it to the poor. Jesus is exposing the true God of this young man. Wealth, riches, possessions. Jesus isn't done. Remember him. Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about being a follower of him and to be a follower. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, 
take up his cross, and follow me. That's what he's doing right here with this rich young man. Deny yourself. Deny the God you're worshiping so that you can follow me. He's calling him to repent. Jesus doesn't swoon at the feet of this rich, powerful young man. He calls him to repent. He sees through him. And so he says, hey, you want to follow me? Repent of your false God of money. Give it all away and then come after me. And then in verse 22, as soon as he hears it, he goes away sorrowful for, as Matthew says, he had great possessions. Remember when this is part of a contrast? Remember the humble of heart? They come to Jesus and Jesus moves towards them. He puts his hands on them. He pours out his grace on them. What does this guy do? Jesus says, come follow me. He goes the other way. Verse 22. When the young man heard, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here's what that all means. He would not follow Jesus because he was unwilling to give up his stuff. So he goes away sorrowful, which is very ironic because I thought that money is supposed to make you happy. No. Do you remember the rich young man's original question? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus' answer about keeping the commandments was just the beginning. He was exposing this man's sinfulness. He was exposing the false god he worshipped. In order for this man to have eternal life meant that he had to deny himself and follow Jesus. The answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is come follow me. Jesus is the source of eternal life. So here we have in this first section a contrast between the humility of a child and the pride of a young man. One, this humility of the child, Jesus welcomes. The pride of the young man, he walks away. God opposes the proud because the proud oppose him, and he gives grace to the humble because the humble come to him. So here we have a contrast, humble or prideful. And it's all a part of this section that's going to get summarized in a parable. The disciples are watching all this happen. And so in verse 19, Jesus makes a major clarification. So we've looked at the contrast. Let's look at the clarification, starting in verse 23. Now, there are two clarifications in this passage, and you can see them with the word truly in verse 23 and verse 28. Let's look at the verse, first clarification on riches. Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to his disciples. With difficulty, it's only with difficulty, a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. And a little bit background of this culture at this time it was believed that wealth 
and possessions were seen as signs of God's blessing on your life. It was kind of a first century kind of uh, prosperity gospel of sorts. It's like, hey, man, you're loaded. Oh, man, God favors on you. We see it showing up nowadays, and it's like, oh, you've got a church of 9,000 people. That's God's blessing you. Oh, you've got a church of 14 people? Here's a book. What Jesus is going to get right here is that wealth is no reliable indicator of God's favor. In fact, wealth is a liability to get into the kingdom. So verse 23, truly I say to you, it's like Jesus said, hey, let me clarify something for you, my disciples. Only with difficulty can a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, what are you talking about? countercultural. It's not a sign of God's favor. It's a liability to entering the kingdom. Here's why. Wealth, possessions, riches, they can become a God unto themselves. It's what someone can live for. It's, it's what someone can say, oh, the love of money. I want to love money with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are some serious warnings about the love of money in our Bibles. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, the love of money is the root of all evil. But you remember this one from Matthew 6. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. It's one or the other. Only one thing can control your heart. What controls your heart controls your life. And what controls your life conforms you to it. And in verse 24, Jesus makes a rather ridiculous Ridiculous comparison. It's crazy. Now, if you're sitting in here, I'm like, oh, well, man, I'm glad I'm not wealthy. I'm glad I'm not rich. Man, this guy next to me is rich. I'm glad. I hope he's hearing it. Well, let me ask you this. Are, are you worried about next month's house payment? Oh, you're not? Are you worried about groceries next week? No? You, transportation all set up? You got health insurance? Is that taken care of? According to the world, you are like part of the 2% of the wealthy. This is a sober warning for anyone. So we're left questioning, that how difficult is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? How difficult, Jesus? And then he gives us this, this really ridiculous example. Look at verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here's the comparison. As far as entering things goes, a a camel, which is a thousand-pound dromedary from the Middle East, it's easier from that thousand-pound beast to get into maybe one-eighth of an inch hole in a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And you know what? You're left saying, well, that's impossible. Well, this week I've been thinking about that. It's not impossible for a thousand-pound dromedary to get into an eye of a needle. Here's all you need to do. We have a ninja liquefier at our house you could liquefy a camel and have a funnel into an eye of the needle and spend four years dripping it in that's the only way it's impossible jesus is not he's making a statement so this understanding that there is this 
eye of the needle gate in the wall of Jerusalem and only a camel needs to bow down and you take everything off, that's an attempted explanation. There's no eye of the needle gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, it's impossible. And the disciples get it. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. That's shocked, flabbergasted. What? Who then can be saved? If the rich folks can't get in, who can? That's exactly where Jesus wants them. Because it's not only wealth that'll keep you out of the kingdom, it's any idol, anything that you worship above God. It's impossible. Who can be saved? Nobody can be saved. No one has the ability to save themselves. No one. In verse 26, Jesus then says something that is incredibly, incredibly important. We first read, But Jesus looked at them, and that would have been his divine x-ray vision into the souls of his disciples. They would have been like, and he says to them, with man, this is impossible that anyone would be saved. But with God, all things are possible. With man, salvation is impossible. Man can't save himself. Only God, by his impossible grace, is able to save sinners. There's only one who is good. There's only one who can save. And so what we see Jesus saying here is, what's impossible for you is is possible for God. His grace alone saves And what we know as Christians is this, what Jesus did on the cross on Calvary, that made the impossible possible. His grace, his power on display on the cross that makes our salvation possible. There's no other way. So here Jesus clarifies, wealth is not a sign of God's favor, but actually it's a major liability. It can keep you out of the kingdom. Everyone's sin keeps them out of the kingdom. If it's not loving wealth, maybe it's loving sex. Maybe it's loving power. Maybe it's loving what other people think about you. That'll keep you out because you're elevating it above God. Only God can save. Grace and grace alone. The second clarification shows up in verse 28, but it's, it's a response to Peter, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have? Hey, the rich dude, he walked away. But Jesus, remember, on the beach, you asked me to follow you. I dropped my nets at my livelihood, and I've been following you for two and a half years. What about us? What does this mean? What will we have? Future. What will we have? What's in it for us? And Jesus' response is to clarify what's coming in the future. A 
a future grace, a future inheritance. God's grace saves us, and God's grace awaits us. He says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, let me clarify you, in the new world, and what he's talking about there in verse 28, I think, truly, I say to you, in the new world, he's talking about when Jesus comes back, and the whole heavens and the earth are made new again. Sin, the curse, is gone. On that day, when he makes all things new, he sits on his glorious throne. He's reigning on high. The kingdom has been consummated in full. On that day, when that happens, you will receive your future grace. You will receive your inheritance. Notice he calls himself the son of man. When the new earth, when I sit on my glorious throne, the son of man, Daniel 7 He's given all authority, dominion over all nations. It's at that time, at that time, you will receive your future inheritance. Jesus says nowhere of when, just it's out there. It's an undefined gap between his first coming and his second coming. We don't know when he's coming back. But the inheritance is there. He then clarifies the inheritance itself. He says to his disciples in verse 28, on that day, new earth, I'm on my throne. You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this isn't the easiest thing to explain. So here's what we know for sure. When Jesus comes back and there's a new heavens and a new earth and he's sitting on his throne, his disciples are going to play a prominent role in establishing the new, the new kingdom, the consummated kingdom. It's a position of prominence, and he's speaking of it as inheritance. It's coming. Jesus recognizes that for those of us who follow after him, who, who deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, he's saying, I've got you. There's future grace that awaits my grace that saves you, there's more grace waiting. In verse 29, he broadens the scope. He says, and everyone who has left houses, everyone would include us. Everyone. Everyone who follow after Jesus. Everyone who's left houses, your greatest possession. Everyone who leaves brothers and sisters, father, mother, or children, your most precious relationships. Everyone who leaves them, who leaves your lands, potential inheritance from your parents. Everyone who leaves those things for my name's sake. To follow me. Will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You notice the future? Will receive, will inherit. It's waiting, it's coming. Jesus understands that we give up our homes and we give up relationships and we give up possible future inheritance to follow him. We get cut out of wills because we're followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, you're in my will. Jesus is directing Peter's gaze to the future return and reign when he's on his throne. I'll take care of you. 
In verse 30, we read this, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And I don't know about you, you read that and you're like, is Jesus speaking in code right now? I don't know what he's saying. And it seems out of place, doesn't it? He's just talking about future, what's this mean? The last will be first and the first will be last. Well, what he's doing is he's getting his disciples ready for what's to come. He's preparing his disciples for the hard work of the kingdom. And he knows that when you have people working together, there's the very likelihood of comparing to one another and grumbling. He knows there's going to be some time before he comes back and sits on his glorious throne. And he wants to focus his followers on his grace. The grace that saves us is the grace that awaits us. And so Jesus sets out a parable. Now, the parable is in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and it's there to explain what he says in verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now look at chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So it bookends. There are these bookends of first and last language surrounding this parable. The parable explains what Jesus means. So what does he say in the parable? Well, let's look. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So the kingdom of heaven, the saving reign of God, is like a master of a house who's going to hire a bunch of people throughout the day and then pay them at the end of the day. It's interesting. Everybody would know what he's talking about. And so in verse 1, there's this master of a house who goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to the center of the village where day laborers would gather to go work in people's vineyards and in farms all the way around. At 6 a.m., the master of the house hires his first group of day laborers to put in a full day, a 12-hour work day in his his vineyard. And if you look at verse 2, Jesus tells this parable, they agree on a denarius, which was the day's wage of the time. Nothing unusual so far, right? Verse 3, the master of the house comes back at the third hour, at 9 a.m., and he comes back and hires more day laborers who are just idly standing by because nobody's hired them. And he says in verse 4, go into my vineyard, and then he talks about some wages. I'll make sure you get what you're due. In verse 5, at the sixth hour, he comes back, does the same thing. At the ninth hour, he comes back, no, excuse me, at the Yes, ninth hour he comes back, and he again hires more people and says, go to my vineyard. The master of the house keeps on coming back and hiring day laborers for the work he has. Apparently, the harvest he has is plentiful, and the workers are few. At the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., which means there's only one more hour in the workday, The master of the house returns once again to the marketplace, finds some other laborers standing there, and he says, why are you standing there? And say, no one's hired us, and he says, go to the vineyard. They don't talk about wages. Just put an hour in. 
Verse 8, when quitting time rolls around, the master of the house tells his foreman to call all the laborers that he has personally hired and sent to his, his vineyard. He say, bring them together, pay them their wages, and then things get interesting. Look at he says, pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. That's interesting. Last and first language. The last are to be hired, the, ha- the last to be hired are to be paid first, and the first to be hired are paid last. We're reaching a climax of the parable. In verse 9, here's the surprise. Those hired last, just an hour earlier, each of them receives a denarius. Each of them receives pay for a full day's work. Now that's unusual. The last received the same pay as the first. We've got a generous master of house. And then in verse 10, the paying of the wages skips to those hired first. You see that word first. Of course, if you were one of these laborers, you're like thinking, oh man, man, look how generous he is with those guys. Man, I might be able to get, you know, my Xbox finally. We're going to get some kind of bonus. But surprise, what happens? They get a denarius. The first are treated like the last. And then in verse 11, these who are hired first, they do what the rest of us are do, grumble. It's the opposite of gratitude. And so look what they do in verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. That's not fair. Grumble, grumble. They're saying, hey, master of the house, you're treating the last guys like us, the first guys. They just worked an hour. We worked all day. We dug for 12 hours in the scorching heat and you're treating them like us? Paying them what you're going to pay us? They see in the parable the master of the house raising those hired last to be equals to those who were working from the first. And then in verse 12, The master of the house says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. It's singular. He's like focusing on one person, and he says, friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Did we not agree on this? Take what belongs to you and go. Hey, case closed, buddy. It's legal. We did it right. And then he says in verse 12, I chose, I chose to give this last worker as I give to you. The first. Notice the emphasis on choice. It's his prerogative. It's the prerogative of the master of the house to give what he wants, to be generous with who he wants to be generous to. In verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge me my generosity? Literally, goodness. There's only one who is good. 
You have no right to take an offense. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's using this parable to show his disciples who are being aimed at the future. He's saying, don't grumble with one another in the vineyard. Don't grumble with one another when you're doing kingdom work. Don't grumble with one another when you're waiting on me. Do you know why? Because you're all recipients of my grace. All of these workers receive the same generosity from the master of the house. And so the point of the parable is grace. The master of the house showing grace upon grace upon grace of being, showing unmerited favor to those who didn't deserve it. So the point of the parable is the last will be first and the first will be last regardless of when you come to Christ, regardless of when you're hired, we're all recipients of the same grace. The grace that saves us is the grace that awaits us. Grace is the great equalizer of disciples. And so what this parable represents, the master of the house is Jesus. His vineyard is the work of the kingdom. The laborers are his disciples. And the end of the day is judgment. There's no room for grumbling in the kingdom. God's grace pushes out grumbling. Those with humble hearts who experience the impossible made possible by God's grace, who are amazed with God's grace, they don't point fingers. I've been trying to help you see that grumbling is the outworking of some perceived injustice. You see it in the parable. Thinking you deserve more than you're given. At the heart of grumbling is selfish pride. You don't get what you think or you're treated unjustly, so you grumble, and it's a cancer to the church. Gratitude is the outworking of a profound sense of humility, of unworthiness. It, it's what happens when poverty of spirit meets God's grace. Here's how it works out. The humble say things like this. That Jesus would call me to follow him? Why would he, by his grace, pursue me? Why would he bother with me? I'm not worthy of him. I rebelled against him. I mocked him. I denied him. I made fun of people who followed him. Why would he follow? Why would he want me? If he's coming at the 11th hour to hire me onto his team, sign me up. Gratitude is the healthy attitude of a humble heart saved by grace, and it pushes out grumbling. So we see Jesus using this parable to make the point to his disciples, hey, as after I leave, and as you're working in the vineyard, there's no room for comparison. There's no room for pride. There's no room for grumbling. There's plenty of room for gratitude. There's plenty of room for rejoicing in the king of grace and having other people experience the same grace. This morning, we've looked at a contrast between the humble and the prideful. And we also saw Jesus clarify 
what God alone is able to do. His grace is able to do the impossible. And there's a future grace that awaits. And here in this parable, he shows us that grace is the great equalizer of the followers of Jesus. So the next time you find yourself tempted to grumble, here, think about these four truths. This one you're grumbling against, this other co-laborer in the kingdom, you were saved by the same grace. The same blood that bought you bought him or her. And you await, second, the same future grace. And by the way, it's way better than a denarius. hundred times. Eternal life. Third, you labor in the same vineyard now. We're working together so that others would experience the amazing grace of God. And finally, when you're tempted to grumble, remember that this co-laborer, this brother, sister in Christ, the two of you serve the same master, the King of Grace. I hope this is all good news for a grumbling heart. God's grace demonstrated in the cross and that awaits us in the new world, it transforms grumbling into gratitude. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for this extended passage and we thank you so much, Jesus, for how you interacted with people and how you taught and how you clarified in this parable that you gave. Lord Jesus, help us to rejoice in the grace you poured out on each of us and may that humble posture towards what you've done, God, may it bring health to our body. God, would you make us a grateful people and God, would you help us to say no to grumbling in light of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.